liberty lockdown please scan your barcode your liberty ain't gone but yeah it's on hold where did it come from and where did it go it requires a fight not tweeting from your phone don't need a king get him off the fucking throne if you're riding with the thought you've always got a home the virus is scared of will come and it'll go the government knows this don't get treated like a hoe Thursday and it's uh, my Chargers play tonight, so I'm excited. But beyond that, I'm very, very concerned about the economy. And uh, this has been a concern for a couple of years since the lockdowns began. So what did I do? I put out the bat signal to one of my favorite financial analysts around, Mr. Jason Burek of Wall Street for Main Street. He's got a great YouTube channel. Make sure you guys check that out. His uh, You can link to it in the description so you guys can go subscribe to his show. I'll bring him on in just one minute, but before I do, I want to thank our sponsor, as always, Expat Money Summit. If the economy is getting too uh, sketchy for you and you decide, I'm just, I'm going to get out of here. This is this is where you learn about it. Go to the upcoming online summit. It's a multi-day event by my friend, Mikkel Thorup, the host of Expat Money. Go to expatmoney.com. They have over 30 experts who are focused on moving your life, business, and wealth offshore. Costs you nothing. It's free to attend. No excuses expatmoneysummit.com or claim your freedom from chaos and uncertainty topics will include how to secure your own plan b safe haven how to use foreign currencies offshore banking and decentralized finance to safeguard your money how to legally reduce your tax burden legally how and where to safely store gold silver and other precious metals and where the best countries are in the world to find freedom for yourself and your family sounds like a good idea to me and just added to the lineup the great dr ron paul do not miss it register for free at expatmoneysummit.com and without further ado, the man of the hour, hidden behind his Wall Street for Main Street logo as usual, Mr. Jason Burak. Thank you for joining us, Jason. Yeah, I don't think video is necessary. I want to focus here on the analysis and the message here. I, I don't need to go buy a green screen right now. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect, you, you, have such a, you have such a nice view in your video there. I think the listeners will enjoy that. Yeah, I, I make up for it with the view, so don't, don't even sweat it. Um, so let's hop in, man. Uh, obviously, we've had some some serious down days in the markets, uh, not exactly surprising given what the, the Fed's policy is, has been of hiking rates. Obviously, rates needed to be hiked. They should have been hiked a decade ago. Uh, where where do we stand today? Well, the Fed's going to start crashing asset prices even more. And for the short term, it seems they don't care. <laughs> they want to, quote unquote, maintain credibility. But for libertarian, small government people or anarchists, anarcho-capitalists, we don't trust the Fed, but the Fed, the majority of people on Wall Street, the majority of business people, the Fed is trying to maintain some credibility by hiking interest rates. The problem is the Fed is fighting, excuse me, the problem is the Fed is fighting a math problem <laughs> because the more the Fed hikes rates, the more the asset prices, especially home prices and other um, the economy with income taxes, other capital gains, tax revenues, other tax receipts, the more likely that these asset prices and the rest of the economy are to crash. And then six to nine months later, the states and local governments, the U.S. federal government are going to have a tax problem. Yeah. So the, the Fed and then there's also the national debt, which keeps growing. We're over 31 trillion at 4 percent or 5 percent interest rates. And there's a tr many trillions of U.S. treasuries that need to be rolled over. This debt will never be paid off. It will be inflated away over time or maybe depending upon what the next global financial system is, what they decide to do with the debt. But the debt's never going to be paid off in real terms. The interest payments on that debt at four or five percent, Clint. I don't know if you've ever done the math at what's four percent or five percent 
interest payments on 31 trillion U.S. Treasuries. It's not pretty. Uh, Six hundred billion or something per year. I don't know. No, it's uh, it's way it's at four percent. It's over a trillion. It's a, over a trillion, I believe, oh, per year. Okay. Just, yeah. Just, oh yeah, yeah. No, of course, because yeah, it would be. Uh, yeah, yeah. One, like one point three trillion or so. Jesus Christ. Yes, uh, and so, so and well, that's not all. The debt's not going to be refinanced at four percent, but it starts to add up. I think over the last twelve months, I think the U.S. federal government paid around eight hundred billion in interest payments. It was a record high. So right. with the rate hikes, the U.S. federal government, with the amount of debt that's increasing, the U.S. federal government is paying a larger percentage of their tax receipts. And I think in most years, Clint, the tax receipts are only around the annual tax receipts for the federal government are only around $1.9 to a little over $2 trillion. So if you're paying, if you're the federal government and you're paying over a trillion dollars just in interest payments on the debt, that's a large chunk of your total tax receipts. And then guess who has to make up the difference it's either you're either going to force the large banks to buy the u.s who's going to buy the u.s treasuries then? because according to what the fed's saying the fed's going to not be buying the u.s treasuries or or at least buying a lot less the fed is supposed to and we just found out today the fed's official balance sheet is not really down yet the fed is supposed right. to be reducing their official balance sheet with quantitative tightening by 90 billion per month and then in the next i think couple of weeks they're supposed to reduce the official balance sheet at 95 billion per month well, so we're this not is, seeing hmm? the, this is my concern is that you know if if they are going to you know quantitative tightening uh, as well as hiking interest rates simultaneously it's really setting us up for a perfect perfect storm of uh you know it, it, it seems as if what they're what they're actually attempting to do is create demand destruction by pricing out people basically no one's going to qualify for home loans uh, at these higher interest rates level interest rate levels which is what i think a lot of people don't understand is that most people that are buying today, especially in the starter home market, are buying, you know, at the margin. Like they can barely, they can barely qualify. They're basically they're buying as much as they possibly can. So yeah. if the interest rate goes from three percent, which it was a year ago, to six percent, which it is today, <clears throat> that obviously increases your debt to income uh, ratio, which makes it so that you will not qualify for that loan. Or if you do qualify, it will be for a significantly smaller price, which means that your offer on that property will be much beneath the asking price, which is how you start to see prices come down. If prices come down, everyone that bought in the past year or two, well, prices were you know crazy elevated, uh, they'll see that they're underwater. You could then see people start to walk away. I've tried to explain this to people and people are just you know critiquing me saying, well, there's not nearly as many uh, adjustable rate mortgages as there was in 06, 07. I, I think that's probably true, but that doesn't change the dynamic of if people are underwater, you will still have an incentive to walk away because why would you well, hold on to this asset? Well, what the Fed has also done over the last 12 months, the amount of mortgage payments that people have, I mean, the average person, even if you locked in a, a lower mortgage, I think mortgage payments are up. They're about doubled for a lot of people here in the United States. Yeah. So that's going to, for the real economy perspective, that's going to take away tons of savings, tons of discretionary income from consumers, from middle class people who, after their mortgage payments, they would have had extra savings. They would have had discretionary income. You also have much higher inflation, higher food and energy prices, higher electricity exactly. prices, higher healthcare. All these things are going to absolutely destroy people's savings, absolutely destroy people's discretionary income. They're going to wreck consumer discretionary businesses. A lot of them, uh, you're seeing Wall Street Journal articles come out in the last month or two. 
with the Fed hiking rates, Clint, that takes away the, a lot of the cancel on effect, especially if the Fed claims they're not doing as much uh, or reducing quantitative easing and officially reducing the balance sheet, although I suspect that they're still doing more covert quantitative easing and yeah, they're they moving tens of billions per week off balance sheet. The problem is we need audits. We need real independent Fed audits like what Ron Paul got. He got a one-time partial Fed audit in 2011 before he left Congress. A lot of people aren't aware of that. And he found, along with a uh, Bloomberg Freedom of Information Act, Bloomberg News Freedom of Information Act request in 2011, and there was a 30,000 data document dump that the Levy Institute went through, there was $29 trillion in secret bailouts just in 2008, 2009. Over $9 trillion went to the European Union and large European banks. That was the lion's share, but large U.S. banks got it, foreign governments, foreign central banks, private investment banks outside the United States. So the Fed was picking and choosing winners and losers. The bailouts increased, Clint, even more. And we found this out from New York Fed disclosures recently, thanks to Dodd-Frank, One, maybe the only good thing about Dodd-Frank. We found out in the 2019 repo madness crisis, which I made a ton of videos on on my YouTube channel for free. Your listeners can go in the archives. And I was talking about there was tons of secret bells. A lot of hedge funds failed when the Fed was raising interest rates the last time and reducing their balance sheet quantitative tightening in that rate hiking cycle. We found out in 2019 repo madness crisis and also early 2020, the Fed did over 48 trillion in ballots. So the, the bellas just increased. Yeah. How, how, how is it possible that they can do 48 trillion in bailouts? Like uh, that money has to be returned somehow, correct? Or are they just, uh, they can't write this stuff off. What, who, who is the, who is the debtor in these situations? It's a good question. So um, a lot of these are currency swap lines where the Fed gives US dollars to the European Central Bank. So there's uh, contractual agreements and a New York Fed vice president actually gave a speech years ago it's covered on the Gold Antitrust Action Action Committee website. There's links to it with the speech. And he admitted that the G7, the Fed, has contractual obligations for emergency U.S. dollar currency swap lines that the G7 central banks like the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan can draw on. And um, normally with these currency swaps, these are not investment bank currency swaps. These are central bank level. So with a currency swap, the Fed creates the dollars and credits the European Central Bank account with the dollars. The European Central Bank sends back euros, but the Fed doesn't need other currencies. So the Fed just ends up waiving the loans later. And the European Central Bank, so these are dollars created out of thin air on a keyboard and then right. credited to the account of the European Central Bank. They get their dollars to help like Deutsche Bank, these other investment banks that had bad derivatives bets and right. to prevent them from failing. So the Fed's um, justification for all this is that if Deutsche Bank, one of the large European banks, one of the large German or French investment banks fails, that will create contagion effect because of the derivatives market. And then that will cause American banks to fail. So the well, it's true. Been, yeah, hmm? it, that's true. I mean, it would it would absolutely create a, a contagion effect. This is true. However, we should not have the derivatives market. And we talked about this in the last interview. We should not have the derivatives market for hundreds of trillions or almost a quadrillion. It should never have gotten to this size. And no, because it is and because it is at this size now in a post 2008 environment with the Fed, everything is so fragile now. The Fed inflated. The Fed did. The Fed allowed with zero interest rate policy and quantitative easing. It caused a lot more hedge funds and speculators and portfolio managers at investment banks and family offices, which are run similar to hedge funds, to go out and borrow at zero or near zero. And you and me can't borrow at zero. I'm a small business no. owner. 
you're you're a wish. investor. Yeah, <laughs> you and me can't borrow at zero. But if you're a portfolio manager in an investment bank and you're managing billions of dollars or a hedge fund manager, you can go and borrow either at zero or near zero. And you can go and put on these leveraged trades on stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities, derivatives. But the problem is these trades, if because they're so leveraged, 10 to 1 or more, that a small move in asset prices. So if you're leveraged like Bear Stearns um, at 40 to 1, a 2.5, if your balance sheet is leveraged 40 to 1, a 2.5% move in asset prices means you're insolvent. Yeah. Margin calls insolvent. So how, how, if, how, how much is, is there an unlimited credit line to the Black Rocks of the world or, or is there some cap at which the, the central banks say, okay, Fed window closed, this is insane? Do you know? I wish there was a cap. I don't think there is because we don't know the real numbers of the belt. We only have, so for 2008, 2009, that 29 trillion number that we have based on the information collected from the Bloomberg News Freedom of Information Act request, Levy Institute going through 30,000 documents, the, the one-time partial audit that Ron Paul got through both houses of Congress, and then the New York Fed disclosures uh, from Dodd-Frank in 2019, 2020. I think those are only partial numbers. Wow. But so the, you think it's actually higher it, than that? Probably. In the environment that we have now, Clint, the derivatives markets, because everything is so leveraged, everything is so fragile. There, there's rumors now, just in the last couple of weeks, Clint, because of electricity prices in the European Union, because of energy price swings with natural gas, liquefied natural gas, oil futures contracts, that a lot of these large European investment banks have over 1.5 trillion in losses <laughs> in, in the derivatives. So, so these are the rumor going around Wall Street now, and that was just uh, speaking with hedge fund contacts and other people in just the last couple of weeks, is that now these large European investment banks have almost two trillion and even more losses on derivatives, derivatives just with the new problem. So there's really nothing right now to stop the Federal Reserve Bank from giving the European Central Bank these dollars as currency swap lines and then waiving the loans. And I actually found proof, and the Fed was denying this. The Fed claimed that the currency swap lines ended. In 2010, it was just an emergency. That's what they said. They said it was just an emergency because of 2008, 2009. But I actually found proof in a New York Fed um, disclosure. I think it was November 2020 because they release these financial distress reports. The Federal Reserve Bank does every six months. And then they put some of the risks. And I actually found um, a chart that the Fed put in one of these reports talking about currency swap lines open. And they disclose, and I took screenshots of this for my patrons that the um, European Central Bank actually had currency swap lines open 2011, 2013, 14, 15, 16. So that coincides with like the problems in Greece and all and like Goldman Sachs and these other investment banks having um, member, uh, I think MF Global and then like Hillary Clinton, no, not Hillary Clinton, Chelsea Clinton's husband. He was trying to be a big shot hedge fund manager. He borrowed billions of dollars and put on the same trade as MF Global, who took uh, the custodial accounts and they were betting big on leveraged trades on Greek debt and those blew up. So um, I suspect that the Fed had to do a bunch of secret bailouts then for the banks and the hedge funds that had bad uh, bad bets on uh, Greek debt in what, 2011. And then you had the pigs crisis, which was in Europe, European Union, which was Portugal, Italy, Ireland, Greece, Spain. Then you had the Brexit crisis, 2015, 2016. There was a bunch of large investment banks and hedge funds that were on the wrong side of the trade for um for currency trades um again so, so what, what what you're describing is essentially the federal reserve being the de facto backstop to 
every Western country and not even some Western? I mean, you said Bank of Japan is, is so is it the global central bank and bailout account for the world? Is that is that what it, it is? Basically, they're willing to bail out almost everyone but China these days. Um, there's a <laughs> lot of ev- <laughs> good lord. China and Russia. Well, not not Russia. Rush, Russia yeah. here here in the DC metro area. Um, there's a lot of politicians and bureaucrats that have taken and lobbying firms that have taken money from Russia and Ukraine. Both both political parties, but uh, they won't talk about that publicly. But publicly, Russia's the enemy. So Russia's right. not getting any bail, any currency swap lines, any bailouts. Neither is China. But yes, so the like. Japan's basically G7, so the G7 central banks, and then also um, Nomi Prince, who's a former, your listeners can buy her audiobook or her audible book on this. I think the book's called Collusion. Um, I don't agree with everything in the book because she's not a libertarian, but um, I did help her with some of the research for the book with the currency swap lines and emails back and forth um, and phone calls and stuff like that uh, in the past when the book came out, prior to the book coming out. I don't know if she gave me credit or not, but there was a bunch of emails back and forth explaining things. Anyway, though, uh, the Fed did bail out a lot of emerging market countries back then, too, in 2008, 2009, although like the terms that um, these countries got their dollars at to save themselves, their central banks and their investment banks and their large corporations, because they had too much dollar denominated debt. Most of these problems, Quint, every two to five years now are because of too much dollar denominated debt. So there's a global debt problem, total debt problem, over 300 trillion now. We went from, I think, 2008, 2009, a little over 200 trillion in total global government debt and corporate debt. Now, almost 15 years later, we're over 300 trillion. So it's just too much debt. And yeah, no, much- that, that's crystal clear. Um, so there, I mean, historically, uh, at least the conspiracy minded, and I think this is true, that the the IMF would serve the role of funneling money to to other you know foreign countries, governments that were in default or or basically insolvent, they couldn't afford uh, whatever whatever their liabilities were, and so but that's but in turn they oftentimes it was called like the economic hitman model where yep. they they would require them to do their bidding i i'm not seeing the same behavior from the us central bank and i don't understand why why would we not be leveraging in this why would we not be well, collecting china, on these debts china copied that model <laughs> china china over the since 2008 2009 china has actually done a lot of the similar debt diplomacy and economic hitman type stuff they sent a yeah, lot of chinese over africa Africa, I know, is big, South, big Chinese funding. South America and the Middle East, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. And other parts of Asia. Yeah. So China has actually been securing a lot of natural resources, farmland, ports all over the globe. Um, they actually copied the uh, debt diplomacy model, the European colonialism debt diplomacy model. I mean, the U.S. didn't invent it. It was actually European colonialism. Of course. And the British government the, first. The old, the old banking families came up with it. Brilliant guys. Well, and then the U.S. copied it, and then that was the economic hit, man. And then China said, oh, that's not a bad idea. We need more natural resources. We need more farmland. So really since 2008, 2009, China's been expanding and doing deals like that with emerging market countries. Well, that's smart. And I, and I, I honestly, you know, if they're if the governments are stupid enough to take those loans on, I think it's better. It's a better form of imperialism than going and bombing people, which is what we've done both. Basically, we go and we bomb people to, to you know, have our, our say in their local politics. Uh, but then we don't seem to turn around and and take the resources. And now you're telling me we're, we're sending them trillions of dollars and not even collecting on it. We're just writing it off. This seems like a, a recipe for absolute insolvency or, or at least a, a you know, destruction of the U.S. dollar. Why are they doing it? I don't understand. 
maintain the status quo, pretend the U.S. is still the dominant economy, pretend the U.S. military and the U.S. government are still in control. Jesus Christ, man, that's the US. scary. Well, I mean, the U.S. banks still profit off this for the most part. I mean, they still... No, I, I know they do, but, but but it would seem that even they would have some sort of incentive to want to protect the U.S. dollar's purchasing power unless they've already concluded that its death is inevitable and that they are already shifting their their holdings into you know harder assets be it real estate or or uh you know precious metals things of that nature and then and then they plan to just shift to the cbdc is that is that kind of your read on it as to their their longer term plans well i think large u.s banks are basically hedge funds so your listeners the old Mm. version of banking where they would borrow from the federal reserve bank at a cheaper interest rate and then loan it out to businesses and that's how banks would make their profits and grow the economy. Those days ended 20 years ago. I mean, really since 2008, 2009, and the housing bubble collapsed and there was zero interest rate policy and the cancel on effect went absolutely bonkers with zero interest rate policy and Fed quantitative easing. The banks have financialized the economy and the banks have decided that it's just easier and more profitable to be hedge funds and set up leverage trades and volatility trades going long and short stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities, derivatives. Could, you, could if, you explain I, the difference real quick for my audience's sake, what, what a hedge fund is versus uh, uh, the older banking model that, that I'm sure most people think is still uh, what's happening? Okay, so a normal banking model, at least the way the fractional reserve banking model was set up in the United States, would be the Fed would set the fractional reserve ratio, and then the banks would be able to borrow additional capital from the Fed, and then they would loan the additional money with fractional reserve lending into existence. So they would borrow additional capital from the Fed at, say, 1% or 2%, loan it out at 5% or 6% for a real estate investor or a small business or something like that. And then that, the spread would be the bank's profits. Well, that's not profitable enough for a bank. The banks decided since the Fed was going to give them almost unlimited or basically unlimited trillions in bailouts since post-2000. I, I think the rules, Clint, changed drastically post-2008, 2009. I think the rules keep changing. It's tough to even know what the rules are at this point because the goalposts keep moving and the rules keep changing because the pretense is that the U.S. is not in a recession. I believe most of these governments are doing varying degrees of economic propaganda with GDP, with jobs numbers and inflation. Some governments are worse than others, but really we're headed towards, especially the United States here, and it's getting really alarming. We're headed towards like Chinese Communist Party and Soviet Union levels of economic propaganda. I actually interviewed, I don't know if you've ever listened to his interviews, Yuri Maltsev. He's done a lot of speeches for the Mises Institute. If your listeners are not familiar with him, he defected from the Soviet Union decades ago. He was really high up in the Soviet Union economics, um, I would call it economic propaganda department. And uh, <laughs> and in the interview, he actually talked about how the Soviet Union had like top secret security clearance levels for their economic data for GDP and those things. And they had three or four sets of books of accounting books for their economy. So they didn't want oh the God. majority. Yeah. So they didn't want them. And the Chinese government has very similar. The Chinese government for years knew what their GDP would be in advance. So, um, <laughs> the, so, so the Soviet Union had top secret like military intelligence us military levels of top secret security clearance for their economic um for their economic data so they had different sets of books this was like total accounting fraud so they wanted their their um they wanted the west to think that gdp was going well that they were growing a lot of crops and selling them their economy was doing great the reality was the opposite 
well, that, that sounds yeah, that sounds exactly like what we're seeing. That's why you know we're we're constantly fighting to to audit the Fed. I I would like to see it ended, but an audit would be uh, a nice start. It ought to be audited, you know, biannually. Like it ought to be audited constantly. It, it it's it's the it's the most important market signal that exists, and and it's done basically under a, a shroud of darkness. And I just I don't. This is why I got out of the the investment uh, the money management game because I was like, this is just. A crapshoot. I mean, I am, I am, I am forced to not just guess at what Fed policy is going to be, but also guess at when the bottom is going to fall out of this because it will fall out. I mean, you can't do this just as the Soviet Union couldn't do it forever, just as the CCP will not be able to do it forever. So too will the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government not be able to do this forever. It just seems as if uh, it's a it's a ticking time bomb and. And I'm I'm trying to to caution you know my my listeners even though this is not financial advice obviously um, that that this at, at some point the the leverage within the system gets to be so over the top and then when you you finally see a you know a quote unquote normalization of interest rates uh, it's not it's not actually a, a floating rate it's just being dictated by uh, the central bank but regardless it is getting closer to what a normal investor would want to see in terms of yields well. All of these things become insolvent because ultimately, who wants to buy a starter home for a million bucks if the if the monthly payment is going to be sixty five hundred, seven thousand, eight thousand, nine thousand dollars? Like it, all of a sudden, that that asset which you thought you could afford at three thousand, well, maybe you can still afford it because your rate's locked in, but now no one can buy it because no one's going to be able to to afford or, that monthly payment. Or property values are going down, and then you're upside down. So you can afford to pay the mortgage, but you're upside down. So because asset prices are temporarily falling. Of course. Yeah. No, and I and I think but, that's what we'll see. And that that's what that's what concerns me is that if if you start to see people walk away from their houses, I mean, you already have uh I mean, the only reason we haven't seen that already is because there was uh, the the foreclosure well, and eviction moratorium kept people in their houses. They also obviously got extended uh unemployment benefits. Uh, a lot of people were working on the side while getting unemployment benefits, so they were just, you know, squirreling away uh extra disposable income and, and keeping it for a rainy day. Well, that rainy day is here. I mean, the inflation is so severe. It's so tough for the average family to get by, much less, you know, people that are well off, you can feel the pain. It's it's really tough. You go shopping, your grocery bills are doubled, your gas bills doubled, your utilities are up double. If you're in Europe, your utilities are up fucking 10x. I mean, it's it's uh it seems like this is a, a global issue. The only thing that's kept us afloat from my perspective is kind of the dollar milkshake theory that that ultimately uh, we're the best of of the sinking ships. Is is the rest of the world in in a similar condition or worse or better? What do you think? It's in a worse condition, actually. I mean, China's so having too. China's having much worse stagflation right now. There's a food and energy crisis as bad as the European Union or worse in mainland China right now. China is also having the worst housing bust, worse in Australia, worse in Canada, worse in the United States. Now things will probably accelerate if the Fed keeps hiking rates. But China is having a legitimate housing bust right now. A lot of Chinese firms are close to failing. So China's having a combination very similar, except on a larger scale than Japan 30 years ago. But China's having a housing bust and a technology bust at the same time. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's exactly right. And this is why I'm so concerned about it leading to a potential hot conflict between the two, because as both governments, uh, you know, both the, the populations in both nations start to rise up because they go, hey, you guys have fucked us over and, and we can't afford to live anymore. And this is a really bad situation. Uh, you could see the 
the leadership in both of these, you know, flailing governments uh, turn to the people and say, well, this is this is because of that nation. And you already see it amongst the Republicans in this country. They already are pointing at China as like, you know, they took our jobs. They did da da da. Um, and I, I think that the the inverse could could very easily happen where uh, the CCP says, well, it's because of the the Federal Reserve policy that we're we're now suffering, and and they could also make up other stuff on top of that. They could propagandize their people. They could point to sanctions, which are are legitimate. They could put to point towards Trump's uh, trade war that that I, I don't know if it's ended. Uh, well, do, actually, do you know if it has? I don't even know. It's even more distortions. It's tough to know because Biden, the Biden family has taken a lot of money from the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, exactly. even with this, <laughs> even with this strategic petroleum reserve oil dump, I mean, Hunter Biden was, I think he moved over 6 million barrels of oil to Chinese oil companies for extra cash. So, I mean, there's so much waste, fraud, corruption and abuse in the system in many countries, although it's most Americans are not accustomed to this level of corruption, but we are at like banana Republic, third world country levels of corruption. Now you wanted to talk about like problems in all these different countries, Clint, this is all because of governments and central banks, bad policy distortions. I think what is happening now because of the derivatives market, total debt, central bank, bad policies from governments and central banks, they've created the supply chain crisis. It could be fixed by the private sector. We could fix the supply chains. If you speak to small business owners, business owners, they will tell you that prices may need to go up temporarily, but we could have the supply chain problems fixed if the government wasn't putting all these rules, regulations, taxes, or straight up telling business owners that they can't fix the supply chain problems. So the no, supply chain problems are still uh, problematic in many different many different industries. I mean, for oil service industries, there's problems with uh, steel piping and, and labor. These costs are still rising. So even though commodities prices, Clint, have crashed in the last six months, a lot of commodities prices, the energy market has still held up pretty well. Uh, especially like liquefied natural gas outside the United States, U.S. natural gas prices, although they're down around 10% today, they're still at close to, they're still above eight. I mean, they're still very, very high. Oil prices are still holding up well. But a couple of years from now, because of what these governments and central banks are doing, if we do have a bust, a really bad crash, I mean, we're going to be talking two or three years from now about even worse supply problems for a lot of these commodities because there was no investment if commodities futures contracts go down another 20, 30, 40% in the short term, there could be bankruptcies from some mining companies and, and other commodities producers. More supply could come offline. A lot of these emerging markets, Clint, that are having tons of problems like food and energy shortages, higher energy costs, higher electricity costs. There's literally protests in the streets in many emerging market countries over energy and electricity prices or food shortages. People want higher wages. So you're going to start to see costs go up and then you're going to see less investment into the supply side. And a lot of these emerging markets are where the commodities are produced. So right. the governments and central banks, we're going to see, I think, this is my guess here, the thesis I'm working with right now. We're going to see a lot more volatility every two or three years and we're going to see shorter boom and bust cycles. So if you're an mm -hmm. investor out there, you're going to have to deal with insane amounts of volatility in your asset prices every couple of years now because of bad government and bad central bank policy creating more and more distortions, more and more problems. And then you're going to see just rapid swings in volatility and asset prices based on policy, whatever the Fed or other central banks or governments decide to do with bad policy. I think that's a fair assessment, man. I, I definitely think that you know we, we've been due for a recession for a very long time. So it wouldn't surprise me at all to see 
a, a, a steep but brief one, uh, followed by the Fed reversing course, uh, starting you know quantitative easing, easing as well as re- reduction in interest rates. See another <clears throat> you know concocted boom cycle, which is totally fictitious. Uh, the leverage still obviously will not have been addressed, and then you'll see. Uh, you know, another very rapid recession. It could, I, I agree with you, it could whipsaw us for a while, um, but I don't think that that model is sustainable in terms of, you know, a long-term pl- plan. And and to your point earlier about how uh, the the solution to shortages and, and high prices uh, via inflation is that the high prices themselves, uh, it, you ultimately will get additional production if you just allow the market to respond to to the incentives incentives that exist, it, it would make perfect sense for a, a business to respond to these record high prices in, in certain asset classes and things like that to say, okay, we're going to produce a hell of a lot more because uh, we want to we want to reap the rewards of those high prices. Uh, but you're not able to see that, and I just know, for, you know, from my own personal experience with the real estate market, because you can't increase. Uh, production very rapidly. It takes years to get through planning on any large development, and I think that that that's just a microcosm of of basically the the hurdles that are put in the way of entrepreneurs in trying to address these issues in all uh, industries. Uh, is that a fair assessment, or am I overstating it? No, I think you're right. But it's even worse for energy policy because you have in the European Union. Look, there's plenty of oil and natural gas reserves available onshore and offshore throughout the European Union. Except in the European Union, they've had bad energy policies. They were promoting ESG, green energy, solar and right. wind in many different countries. So they had uh, oil and natural gas drilling bans in many parts of the European Union for the last you know, decades, last 10, yeah. 15 years. So there's really only going to be production growth for oil and natural gas from Norway, the North Sea is even starting to falter. That was one of the few areas where they were allowing it. So they are totally dependent right now, the European Union is, on importing more, they were dependent from Russia, but they're going to have to diversify their supply. They're gonna have to start building liquefied natural gas import facilities. They do have some already, but they're not in Germany. And then they have to move the gas through pipeline or truck it into from other parts of europe but yeah it's insane it's going to be uh, and, very- and you were you were describing it as as you know developing uh, economies that were having protests and things like that because of inflation and utility costs etc cetera, etc cetera. uh i think that's what we're going to see in much of europe this winter uh is it is the condition as bad as, as what i've read about it or or is it being overstated there too i don't know oh, oh no it's it's definitely bad and the wall street Wall Street has not accurately put in the earnings problems that the S&P 500 companies, the Dow companies, they have 20 to 30 percent of their earnings. A lot of these large multinational corporations, at least 20 percent of their revenues are from the European Union. And the European Union, they're dealing with these companies are dealing with much higher costs from inflation in the supply chain. In some industries, they have higher labor costs. They're dealing with much higher energy costs and electricity costs, most most companies and industries. And then you have potentially a collapse in sales for a lot right. of these consumer discretionary companies from the European Union and also in other areas. But the European Union, especially like if their electricity bill and their energy bills are going up 10x. Yeah, so those, well, no kidding. Those are uh, no kidding. I would stop buying uh, basically anything just to keep the the lights on. It's It's crazy. 
Yeah, so Wall Street has not downgraded the earnings estimates yet. At least I haven't seen the earnings estimates reasonably downgraded by 10, 15, 20, maybe even 30% yet. I haven't seen any Wall Street firms do smart, responsible earnings downgrades yet. So that means that we have uh, more downside in in our stock market is essentially what you're saying, right? Probably. I would yeah. probably say so. Based on the policy, we'll see. We don't have we don't know what the Fed's going to do with the rate hikes. The odds are still probably pretty high. The Fed's going to hike rates more. But six, nine, 12 months from now, the Fed's only going to make things worse for themselves. The Fed does not have any good options left. If the Fed hikes rates now and they crash asset prices, they're going to create even more problems for the U.S. federal government with tax receipts, for state and local governments, with property taxes, and all reliant on higher asset prices, home prices going up. There was a lot of people, Clint, with zero interest rate policy and the cancel on effect who were making enormous amounts of profits, flipping homes. I mean, those easy profits, the Wall Street Journal ran an article on this a month or two ago that the um, the more affluent people, upper middle class and affluent people were making tons of extra cash per year, day trading stocks, trading stock options, flipping homes, uh, doing leveraged bond trades, basically copying a hedge fund with these types right. of trades. And these things will go away. I didn't explain um, a few minutes ago, 20, 30 minutes ago, you asked about basic banking versus hedge funds. So I explained basic banking where, where they would borrow from the Fed uh, at a cheaper interest rate and then uh, lend out the money at a higher interest rate to a small business or something like that. And that would be their spread in the bank profits in the past. That was boring basic banking in the past from a That's bank. That's called ar arbitrage, correct? Um, no, that's just regular banking. <laughs> okay. That's no, I thought, I thought spread. that when you, when you borrow low and then you basically keep the spread, that's an arbitrage opportunity. Uh, that's at least how I've always phrased it, but maybe I'm so wrong. So for basic banking, it may be called something different. So like a merger, there's merger arbitrage where you're betting on leverage buyouts. Um, there's like currency arbitrage. So there's different types of arbitrage. Okay. So that was just basically... <laughs> It doesn't matter. Just go so go the, ahead with the, the hedge difference in, The difference between borrowing at the interest rate and then loaning out at a higher interest rate is your spread sure, in basic banking. So that was basic banking. The banks decided decades ago as the economy became financialized that they didn't want to do that. The derivatives market became one of the most profitable areas for the banks. There's so much volatility now. Actually, um, one of the most profitable sectors right now, Clint, believe it or not, are these broker dealers. So like um, E-Trade, well, E-Trade was mm. bought, but the companies that actually, like Charles Schwab, Fidelity, these guys have record amounts of people trading, day trading. So they're betting on volatility, they're trading stock options. That's where uh, these firms are collecting in, as market makers. These firms are having record amounts of profits right now. Those shares are actually during this bear market because there's so much volatility in the asset prices. These companies are actually doing very, very well right now because hedge fund guys and day traders are going long and short and, and doing options trades, volatility trades right now. Yeah, that's where they make their points. That makes sense. Um, but but go ahead and explain the, uh, the hedge fund difference. Okay, so a hedge fund is normally, as most hedge funds are long short, so they're not going to pick out one direction. They're going to either set up a hedge. So maybe and at this long, point- Long means that you're betting it'll go up. Short means that you're betting that it will go down just for the audience's yes. sake. Or you're setting up some type of some type of protection trade. So if you're going long a certain type of stock or commodity, you're buying put protection or you're buying some other type of hedge in case right. you're wrong or you're wrong on the timing. So you might, if you're a currency trader, you might go long currency, long one currency uh, and short another. If you're um, 
for a contrarian trader though, for a hedge fund, I mean, right now, I think the opportunities because they're cheap, I do bottom up investing. I'm looking for, for companies where the baby's being thrown out with the bathwater, where they're still making profits and free cash flow. The shares are hated right now. I monitor social media and look at posts. Gold stocks are absolutely hated right now. And there are some gold stocks that don't do any mining and still have over a thousand dollar an ounce profit margins. So hmm. those companies in the short term, they may go down. They're not going to go bankrupt in past bear market cycles. They still make a lot of money. They end up actually in mining bear markets and commodities bear markets they actually grow. So those are the precious metal royalty and streaming so companies. You're, like Frank. Hmm? you're not talking Barrick and, and the big boys. You're saying the smaller miners. So um, these companies like Franco Nevada and Wing Precious Metals, they don't actually mine. So they oh, help okay. out. So if a mining company has a financial problem and they can't go to a bank, let's say the bank either is not going to give them any capital or they're going to offer them capital at above junk bond penalty rates. And there's gotcha. no equity available. So retail investors or institutional investors don't want to buy any shares, even at a 10, 15% discount to the stock price, to the market price. These royalty and streaming companies have cash. They have better profit margins and cash flow. They have access to much cheaper cost of capital with um, credit lines at a lower interest rate. So they go in and a mining company in a bear market, they can go and buy a slice of the revenue. It's called a stream. They can go and buy 10% or less. Sometimes it's more than that, but then uh, the mine risk being uneconomic, uh, they buy a stream of the revenues of the mine. Hmm. So okay. the mining company gets, the, the reason the mining companies like this is the mining companies get the cash immediately within a couple of weeks. So the mining companies sure. get the cash and it fixes their balance sheet. Right. And then the royalty and streaming companies get immediate cash flow. So it's win-win. Whereas if the, if the mining company tried to get capital from a bank, it could take six months or more if they get approval at all. Right, which and, kills all of their plans. Well, also, if you're a mining company, right, and you're trying to bring a mine online or you're having balance sheet problems, six months might be too long. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. I mean, you yeah, could be you insolvent to, entirely. Correct. Uh, it's, correct. it's kind of and like there, a short, short, ter short term lending, uh, you know, overnight lending type operation. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, briefly about uh, Bitcoin it in the cryptocurrency more broadly. Uh, I don't know if you're a player there at all. Are you a believer, un unbeliever? Uh, what do you, what do you think for the, the short intermediate long-term in that asset class? So I've spoken with a lot of young adults lately, and unfortunately the attitude from them is that they have the attitude that they're buying all the dips in Bitcoin. They're not diversified. They still think Bitcoin's going to six figures. I do own Bitcoin. I do not own it as an investment. I've owned Bitcoin for years. I've been covering Bitcoin on my YouTube channel since 2013. 20, no, no, no. It was before 2013. I was interviewing Trace Meyer 2011, 2012. He was trying to explain Bitcoin because I, I've known <laughs> Trace Meyer since before he ever bought a Bitcoin when he was just gold and silver and he wrote, uh, he was running the Rent to Gold website. Mm -hmm. um, I look at Bitcoin as a nice speculative asset like risk on. So I'm monitoring um, Bitcoin from a uh, risk reward perspective when there's tons of social media posts saying, I'll never buy Bitcoin again. I hate it. It's horrible. So then I'm you'll looking go all for, in. <laughs> well, I, that's a buying opportunity. So I'm looking for, for weeks, if not months of people just posting stuff like, I hate Bitcoin. I'll never buy it. I'll never touch it again. I ruined all my, I wasted all my finances buying it. And then as a contrarian investor, risk reward speculation, it would be a speculative buy. I don't yeah. think we're there yet, Clint, because yeah. I think people are still buying the dip. There's a lot, especially young people who are not diversified. And I've asked them like, 
okay, it's okay if you love Bitcoin, it's okay if you love gold, it's okay if you love silver, but what other investments or asset classes do you have Do you have um, exposure to? And the answer I get from a lot of young adults is they only have Bitcoin and a couple other cryptos. Well, the, that's the problem is that most of them don't have a portfolio of, of a you know serious enough magnitude that they can even consider diversification. They're like, I got... I got 10 grand. So yeah, I, I own I, you know, a, a half a Bitcoin. It's it's tough out there, man. I'm turning 40 soon. So I'm, I'm still fairly young. But I mean, I've been in the financial industry now for almost 15 years. So maybe you can call me a little old school. But I like looking at financial statements, balance sheets, statement of cash flows. So it's just easier for me to sure. when an industry or sector is hated when the shares are down 50, 60, 70, 80% to go in and look for companies that are still doing pretty decent and that if things turn around, sentiment turns around, the shares can go up 2X to 5X. Yeah, so no, I'm the, I'm the same way. That, yeah. That's my preference too. And it, this is why, uh, you know, I haven't ever become uh, a Bitcoin maxi. It's like, it's just, it's too much, it's too temperamental. Uh, it's too volatile. And, you know, as someone who's a more conservative investor, uh, that concerns me. You know, I can't, I can't ever know for sure. It, obviously, if it becomes the reserve currency, of the world right now is a tremendous buying opportunity. But who the fuck knows if that's going to happen? And anyone that well, I don't, that they I don't do think it'll be a lot. I don't think it'll with the governments, the military, and the governments that we have in power now. I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, unfortunately, yeah, why, why would they let it happen? Well, well, as as a libertarian, I would love free market, competing currencies, small government, or or no government. I would love adults to take responsibility for themselves and their own actions that's not where things are headed <laughs> yeah no i i, I totally we, agree with you and and I, have, I still think i still think that there's there's room for a bullish argument even if we i mean if we go full totalitarian and and ultimately bitcoin becomes you know the the currency of the canceled you know the globally canceled population even that would be enough that that i could see some serious upside in the uh the price of it but that that's not going to be without some major fits and starts between now and then so I think Bitcoin is a good speculative asset long term. The question is when to buy it. So I was actually doing interviews with George Gammon. Let's see. It was one of my first interviews. It was in early 2020, my first or second interview. So summer of 2020, maybe my second interview. And Bitcoin, every, no one had really paid much attention to it because it had been in a bear market since January 2017 because I was at the DC blockchain summit in DC when Bitcoin crashed, when it went to 19,000 the first time and then crashed. So I was like, this is going to take a few years. Sentiment's going to be negative. I was starting to see just tons of social media posts that I'll never touch Bitcoin again. So early to mid-2020, the sentiment levels, Bitcoin was looking at good risk-to-reward sentiment in 2020. Then, So it was around 7,000 or 8,000, then maybe 9,000. And then it did obviously go on a big run up to 69,000. But, you know, as an, as an investment, as some, it's so volatile. You can, it has no cash flows. It doesn't have good profit margins. It doesn't pay a dividend. So I don't view Bitcoin as an investment. I view it as a good speculative asset that yeah, maybe, yeah, as a good speculative asset that if you monitor social media posts that you can accumulate maybe and then sell it when things are euphoric. So when Bitcoin was at 69,000, I mean, the predictions, Clint, were that Bitcoin was going <laughs> to hit. Hey. Yeah, Bitcoin was going to hit 200k in weeks, and then in in 12 months it was going to a million. Right. So I know those. This is something that your listeners should monitor. They should look for social media posts, euphoria, and sentiment. What is hated? What is cheap? Yeah. Um, well, I think I think that 
you know, there is a lot of bearish sentiment on on Bitcoin right now. So we could be nearing a uh, an interim low. And I think that's that's possible. I could also see it going to five figures before people, you know, the true uh, buy the dip hodl people get washed out. And they and especially with inflation, you could see some people that are forced to liquidate just to survive. So I think that's going to be an interesting uh, moment. And, and when you f- see full exhaustion of the bulls, that's when the the bears will have their day or the the bear market buyers will have their day and and as a contrarian investor i'll be i'll be there right alongside you buying with both hands when i when i feel that sentiment uh strike and and similarly i told people in december of last year that i thought bitcoin was probably uh at its high and you know i got a lot of hate for it because ultimately um you know i'm a libertarian and i believe in decentralized currency and i want it to succeed but it's like i just understand watching trends and i i understand the the you know cult like thinking that happens with any extreme bull market and it's like same with housing i knew in 0708 i knew it was at a high i i knew when bitcoin was nearing a high it's just like if you've been around a long enough time you just start to get an instinct for this stuff yeah i have friends who only own physical gold and silver so they're expecting silver to go up 10x 20x 30x 50x and here they are 10 12 years later it hasn't so in, in this environment, with governments changing the rules, the Fed doing secret bailouts, tons of manipulation, it's very difficult. It's I would call it a fool's errand to try to be all in on any one asset class because you don't know what the rules. I, we could see we could see gold go to five thousand dollars in three years. And then all of a sudden, the governments decide that they're going to put a windfall profits tax on on anyone who owns physical gold, or they're going to put a windfall profits tax on mining companies. We're seeing governments right now, there's a good amount of governments that have either already done it or they threatened to put windfall profits tax on oil and natural gas companies. Well, Clint, the real world for a developed, uh, for, for any type of economy, the modern economy we have, whether you're a developed country or a developing country, you need cheap energy, you need cheap electricity. So nuclear power is a good source, but a lot of these countries are not investing in nuclear power. Nuclear power is energy dense. It can be done safely and it's a cheaper, it makes cheap electricity. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, no, I know, then, I love it. But then I love it. Uh, it's great. It's great. The ESG stuff is absolutely going to starve and freeze people to death. It's so ridiculous. Well, yeah, you have a government created food and energy crisis and this is not going to go away. So even if, even if the central banks, the Fed and other central banks raise interest rates and their currencies, te- the, the dollar maybe continues a temporary rally, it's not going to permanently kill demand. Because then supply is going to come offline. And then a couple of years from now, we're going to be talking about how these uh, food and energy companies, they're going to have to raise prices. They didn't bring any supply online. We're going to be talking about food and energy problems going forward again. They're not going to permanently kill demand. No, of course. Especially not for food. (laughs) There's no no killing demand for food unless you kill the people. And I hope they don't do that. Well, and food is made with a ton of energy. There's a ton of energy needed for each calorie, whether you're making staple crops or producing protein. So there's a ton of energy in everything we consume. It's it's absolutely insane. It is truly a war on the market itself to be anti-energy. Uh, however, you can get it. I mean, obviously, we want to keep the planet alive. I'm not I'm not advocating for its total destruction, but I'm also most urgently concerned with keeping the seven billion people alive. And it seems as if that has become a secondary consideration to our technocratic elites that that are, are dictating uh, the way our global economic models are set up. It's absolutely maddening. I want to ask you about the housing market. Before I do, I want to thank our other sponsor for tonight, and that is CrowdHealth. <clears throat> 
Whether you know it or not, the government and big insurance companies stand in between yourself and quality care. This is a great way to kind of bring the, the consumer back into contact with the provider. I think that this is a tremendous concept and something you guys should definitely look into. I currently pay over $500 a month for my health insurance. CrowdHealth, it's, it's as low as $200 a month. And if you use the code LIBERTY, excuse me, the code LOCKDOWN, at checkout, you can get up to half percent, uh, or half, up to half percent, up to half off, which would be about $99 for the first six months. Definitely worth consideration. The Crowd Health is not health insurance. It's a totally different way of paying for health care. Terms and conditions may apply. However, I would highly recommend you guys check this out. Basically, you pay one low monthly total to fund your account, which is less than $200 a month for most people. 100% of your monthly contributions directly funds and reduces the healthcare costs of the community. And unlike insurance, you're not limited by doctor networks. So how does it lower your cost by up to 60% per year? Unlike insurance, CrowdHealth succeeds by keeping its members happy, not by driving up the price. CrowdHealth helps members shop for great care at a fair price, makes payments to doctors and members as quickly as possible, and negotiates on the community's behalf when unexpected bills arise. It's totally reverses the, dis the excuse me it totally reverses the vicious incentives that got the healthcare system into this mess in the first place and good god do we need it my mom has been in uh, a hospice care manager for a couple decades now and she just tells me it is an absolute nightmare dealing with the insurance companies and i believe her because i've dealt with them myself and it's just a disaster so take take control of your own health as well as your own uh, financial life by checking out health net let me see where it's at. Join crowdhealth.com and use the promo code lockdown at checkout. Again, join crowdhealth.com and use promo code lockdown. Alrighty. And we're back without further ado. Jason, tell me. I, I personally believe that this is a terrible time to be buying a house. So it, that's that's my opinion based off of the fact that you're already seeing uh, consumer exhaustion when it comes to their ability to qualify for loans and and purchase at these prices. I think that we only have basically room for uh, at least somewhat of a slide. I think we're already seeing softening in pricing in many, many markets across the country. Obviously, real estate is local, so we can't, it, this isn't going to apply to every single market. But broadly speaking, if you have interest rates that were 30 year mortgages were three and a half or three and a quarter, now they're six and a quarter, maybe up to six and a half. If the Fed continues with the interest rate hiking policy, I see nothing but downside. Why would someone buy right now? That's my operating thesis. Tell me if I'm wrong at all. No, I agree. I agree. Okay. Now, if real estate prices crash and the Fed just secretly gives BlackRock hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars of so BlackRock <laughs> or hedge funds or private equity, or they give a, a foreign pension fund maybe zero interest rate loans to go in there and buy their real estate, yeah, that's uh, from 2008 to 2012 to help stabilize real estate prices and rally them. That's basically what the Federal Reserve Bank did. They gave yeah. BlackRock, they gave hedge funds, they gave private equity tens of billions, if not trillions. I don't know if we'll ever know the real number. They give them tons of cheap or free capital to go and buy mortgage-backed securities, to go and buy housing derivatives, to go and buy entire, literally streets or, or entire neighborhoods of houses. And then that eventually drives up. So that helped drive up the property values and then that helped drive up the rents. Yeah, no, I agree with you, man. Uh, I got a comment here that I need to address. Uh, William says, William Wallace of the, uh, the Irish clan or Scottish, excuse me. Houses never seem to go down in good livable areas. They just go flat for a while. Strong disagree, Mr. Wallace. You may be a young person, I'm not sure. But let me tell you, as someone who grew up in San Diego, uh, I saw prices get cut by 40% uh, 
just 15 years ago. 40% in San Diego. No one doesn't want to live in San Diego. Everyone wants to live there. There's huge demand for housing. I'm telling you, 09, 09 and 10, you could buy whatever you wanted. No one was buying at all. That we have obviously, I don't think we'll get that severe because there's ultimately still a shortage because the population continues to increase, especially in border uh, states. You have you know immigrants that want housing, uh, and and ultimately the the blue states in particular make it very challenging to build additional inventory. But let me tell you, there even in good markets, you can see serious uh, price cuts. It, it won't last forever. I'll grant you that but it can happen, uh, even in the nice areas. Anyways, is there anything else uh, on the real estate front that you think is is worth mentioning? No, I agree with your point there. I mean, there there will be a buying window. There will be opportunities. It's probably not going to last very long because the goal really since 2008, 2009 for the Fed with zero interest rate policy quantitative easing has exactly. been inflate asset prices, inflate stocks, inflate bonds, inflate real estate. So these governments could collect more and more tax revenues. And then the Fed would say, as part of the wealth effect, even though they were actually creating a worse and worse wealth disparity between the more fluent people who could either borrow at zero or afford cheap interest rates and buy more assets or already own more assets, and people who are just starting out my age or younger, young adults, they created an enormous wealth disparity. But really, um, if you look at the tax base, what the federal government and the state and local governments, I mean, they've been overly reliant and it's been increasingly so, especially the federal government for capital gains taxes on asset prices. It's increased a lot in the last couple of decades where the U.S. federal government, the annual tax receipts, they've needed much higher capital gains taxes for stocks, bonds and real estate. So if yeah. that were to crash, I would argue that one of the main, there were three main reasons, in my opinion, for the quantitative easing program. And it was not what the Fed said in 2008, 2009. It was for bailouts for, for foreign governments and U.S. banks and large corporations. So the, the bailouts were one. Another was to inflate asset prices. I forgot the third. I was talking about this months ago. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, it's fine. I, I think I think your point about the tax receipts being a, a primary driver of the bailouts uh, and the, the reason that the you know, they have to maintain elevated asset prices just so that their tax receipts can stay elevated so that they don't go insolvent themselves. I think that's that's ultimately why I, I guess long term I'm bullish. I'm bullish based off of basically inflation, not on any fundamental market reasons, which is not a comfortable feeling. I, I would greatly prefer to be bullish because I see real opportunity in the economy like the the old school days. But now it's just pure it's pure uh, assess Fed policy and then uh, you know funnel your your investment capital in that direction and hope that you benefit from it. It's it's a completely disastrous formulation for an economy. You can't the the underpinning of it is so tenuous. You can't expect it to be sustainable. And this is why I don't believe it's sustainable. And ultimately, why I'm an abolitionist, not a reformist, not an auditor. I want the fucking Federal Reserve ended. I want to be able to go back to an actual free market you know, capitalist society. And we haven't had that for over a hundred years and no one even knows it. And, and it drives me absolutely crazy that, that people think that, you know, we're actually arguing between the Republicans, which are free market and the Democrats, which are socialists. It's like both these fucking parties are socialists. The most important thing in an economy is the money supply. Like it, it ultimately, it shouldn't be dictated by the government at all. But if it's going to be, it certainly should be backed by something real, something hard. And as of 1971, that's no longer the case. So I think ultimately we're doomed for 
a continuation of a very severe and, and increasingly so boom bust cycle that's going to wipe out a lot of people. And and it, it it pains me because I care about the the poor in this country. And I know that's that's counter to what a lot of people think of when it comes to libertarians that, oh, we're just about our own self-interest and our own greed and blah, blah, blah. Couldn't well, be further we want from the truth. Mobility. We want people yes, to have opportunities. Exactly. We want people to have the ability to, if they do good research and they build a business that they can make a long-term investment into their business or other investments and they have a chance to move up in life. And, you know, if the Fed is going to hand out 0% interest, the, the third reason for quantitative easing, just remember, just to fund the government. So, so bailouts for private for companies, funding the government and inflating asset prices. Those are the three main reasons for the quantitative easing. Yeah, no, I agree with you, but, man. And but yeah, I mean, if if you allow people to have more opportunities, and that means less rules, less regulations, less taxes, and that unfortunately for for people who are in favor of the government, that means adults have to take more responsibility for their choices. Yeah, good luck getting people to do that. <laughs> see, <laughs> see, seems like uh, you know no one wants to take uh, personal responsibility or accountability for their actions, and. Ultimately, the buck stops the top and the top is the Federal Reserve. I, I, this is why it drives me crazy that, uh, you know, it was Alex Jones and uh, Stephen Crowder today were saying that they're, you know, anti-libertarian now because ultimately libertarian can't address fascism. And I'm like, look, the, the root cause of the fascistic model that we are languishing under today is a product of central banking and the Federal Reserve most specifically. I can't mm -hmm. emphasize enough how we are the only ones with an answer to this question. You have to abolish the Federal Reserve. You cannot just fucking pretend that this can be reformed. It's like it's like reforming the FBI. It's a corrupt institution to its core. Its, nets, its net negative on society is evident for any fair-minded person to see. It's the same thing with the central banks. And, and yet the Republicans are just going to use it as a, as a you know, talking point, ultimately to wield it in their own favor as opposed to abolishing the evil and throwing the ring in the fucking Mordor or whatever Lord of the Rings metaphor well, most, I'm surely butchering. <laughs> most Republicans don't even want the Federal Reserve audited because then that means the I, Pentagon doesn't get unlimited spending. <laughs> exactly. that, that means no, no foreign aid, no foreign aid that's being kicked back to Boeing and all the other military industrial complex companies. That means the billion dollars per day that's wasted at the Pentagon that they can't account for, the waste, fraud, corruption, and abuse. That means that goes away. The Federal Reserve secretly funds and bails out all of it. Yep. It, it not only keeps the crony capitalists afloat, but it also keeps the military industrial crony capitalists afloat. It's uh, it's a truly evil enterprise. And, and I can't believe that uh, that we are the, the lone wolves in the wilderness howling out for this stuff. And and yet we're we're looked at as being lunatics as opposed to the fucking obvious truth tellers that we are. It, it drives me totally insane. Anyways. Well, Congress loves the Federal Reserve because then that means that Congress can do their insider trade. So, <laughs> of course, no, I mean, ev everybody in power benefits from it. I've even benefited from the Federal Reserve's manipulation of assets. But it's I, the only reason I benefited from it is because I understood it on a very deep level. I understood what the Fed was going to do and why housing was going to benefit. And, I, you know, I play the game, but I don't want to have to play the game. I want to be able to actually play a real fair level playing field game allow my own intelligence and merit and risk taking to benefit myself on an honest even playing field do not do not allow just my my extra bit of knowledge when it comes to central banking be the only reason that i've i've succeeded in life it's fucking it's bullshit and it drives me crazy because it, it 
you know, the vast majority of people don't understand the game at all. You know, they just think that like buy Bitcoin, it's going to fix this or they, those are, and those are the people that actually do understand this stuff decently. Most people are just like, well, buy the dip on Google or whatever, buy, buy Boeing, buy it's, uh, it's evil. They also Sorry. think the Fed hiking interest rates is going to fully stop inflation. I mean, it's it's going to create more distortions. The Fed should have never done quantitative easing and zero interest rate policy for almost 15 years. So that was the artificial boom. The Fed raising interest rates is going to create the bust. But the system is so over leveraged, so reliant on a high asset prices, so fragile. It's not going to last very long if the Fed keeps no. hiking interest rates. I mean, the U.S. federal government, as we discussed earlier in the interview, can't afford interest payments at 4% or 5% for maybe a couple months <laughs> i i know man that's that's why i think they will ultimately reverse course but as is normally the case the fed doesn't have the the necessary foresight or perhaps they do this intentionally i don't know um but they they will work over they will over adjust they you'll ultimately see a a, a serious drop in asset prices before they re reverse course as opposed to reading the tea leaves and going okay we know what's going to come from this. We're going to stop here so that it doesn't get much worse. I think they're going to, you know, over adjust and, and put us into a brief deflationary period. That's my expectation, at least. Clint, things are so corrupt here in the D.C. metro area. It would not surprise me to find out. And I don't know if we're ever going to have an investigative journalist do any work on this. If most of the people at the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell and the Fed Board of Governors already have their out of the money puts on the stock market and other markets. So they know the interest rate hikes are going to continue. They already have their out of the money puts and they're going to make an extra 50 grand, 200 grand off their short term trades. They're going to cash out and they know. So it would not Jesus. surprise me if that's still happening. The Fed claims that they're stopping stock trades, but the stock trades that some of these guys were making who are Fed governors who were like president of Harvard or former Goldman Sachs people. I mean, they were making millions of dollars extra per year on inside information on the quantitative easing trades. And unfortunately, this is the new normal here in the D.C. metro area. I mean, information in the government agencies is bought, sold it, and traded upon at the top secret security clearance level. It is unbelievable. It, we are at the, for um, a historical perspective, Clint, we are at end of the Roman Empire levels of corruption here. Uh, and, and I'm behind enemy lines. <laughs> yeah, you are. And and I appreciate your service and going behind enemy lines and then reporting back to the troops because <laughs> uh, it, it's really valuable. And, and I really appreciate the work that you do, man. Go ahead and tell people where they can follow you. I'm going to, I'm going to do a, a brief breakdown of this Josh Holly clip uh, with Facebook today. Cause I think it's really important, but I'm going to let you go. So go ahead and tell people wall street for main street. Everybody needs to subscribe, but where else can they follow you? Sure. My YouTube channel is free and there's almost 2,000 free videos, a lot of in-depth in interviews and also short videos on a lot of interesting topics about the global economy, companies and sectors there. That's W-L-L-S-T-F-O-R-M-E-I-N-S-T. They could just look that in the YouTube search. I also have a Patreon. I have more in-depth articles behind the paywall there. There are in-depth research articles on commodity companies and different sectors, some global macro articles. There's almost 250 in-depth articles. A lot of them are on companies right now that are hated, cheap, and some of them are even increasing their dividends. They have free cash flow. They don't have to worry about higher energy costs. If commodity prices go a little bit lower, they still have good profit margins. There are a lot of opportunities now because of sentiment, because of valuation in a lot of different commodities sectors. No, so whether that's man. So whether that's low cost base metal companies, the best income paying companies for now. Now, this assumes that energy prices don't totally crash. The best income opportunities right now are in the energy sector. So oil, natural gas, pipeline companies, refiners, 
because key investments, because all these government policies, there's not investment into the supply side. Governments are just not allowing, in many cases, investment into the supply side. So there's not a lot of new supply, new drilling and new supply that's coming online. So we're going to be talking, unless things something unforeseen comes, we're going to be talking about a food and energy crisis probably for years going I forward. So I mean, Hmm? I think so too. And if you're if you're an investor out there that's listening, uh, make sure you follow Jason Burak's work. I, I think that he does some of the best analysis around, maybe not if not the best. And uh, if you're going to suffer an inflationary environment or a deflationary uh, bust because of Federal Reserve policy, well, you might as well find a way to profit and and weather this better than most. And uh, Jason could certainly assist you in that process. So thank you again for joining me, Jason. It was great. You're welcome. But the, the next six to 12 months are going to be very, very rough for people who own asset prices trying to look for positive returns, unless you're a hedge fund trader and you're trading this volatility up and down and you're doing short-term trades or contrarian swing trades and you're looking for buy low, sell high, quick short-term trades or a swing trade over a couple of weeks or a couple of months and you're getting in, you're getting out, you have hedges in place. The average retail investor cannot do that. So right. So trying to do that, picking one direction or one side in this environment where a government announcement with a new tax policy or rules change or a central bank making an announcement can absolutely crush your position. Unfortunately, this is the environment that we're in right now. I agree, man. You got to be got to be nimble, got to play it both ways. And, uh, you know, if you don't know what we're talking about, make sure you follow Jason's work so that you can figure it out because it's going to it's going to help you weather it better than most people. I promise you that. Uh, anyways, thank you again, Jason. I'll, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Great. Um, I forgot to mention the URL for my pay. It's only uh, $5 a month behind the paywall for the articles. If your listeners want to check it out, it's patreon.com slash Wall Street for Main Street. So W-L-L-S-T-F-O-R-M-E-I-N-S-T. I charge a very low price for the research articles there. It's mostly just to keep my overhead and pay my bills and people can actually afford really good information and affordable price. I'm not overcharging people. Uh, not at all, man. That's that's a absolute bargain. So make sure you guys check that out. Anyways, brother, I'll talk to you soon, okay? Great. All right. Thanks again, man. Don't don't go anywhere. I have a very important video that I want to share with you guys. This is absolutely wild. Thank you so much to Jason Bragg. Make sure you go follow Wall Street for Main Street and check out his Patreon too. That guy is an absolute wizard, and I, I really appreciate his insights. We I, I need them. And I'm obviously I did this professionally, and and yet he's still He's a deeper diver than me even. So uh, I, I love that we get to have him on periodically to actually go over this stuff. It absolutely adds to my knowledge base and allows me to make a, a better assessment of things. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. Let's do it. We got Josh Hawley grilling Facebook's executive on uh, their collusion with the CDC. This is a barn burner. I know that Facebook has said in the past that it's, their position as a private company, you're not subject to the First Amendment. I, I assume that hasn't changed. Is that right? That's correct, Senator. But uh, the United States government is subject to the First Amendment. I think we can probably all agree on. Hopefully we can. Hopefully that's still true in this country. <laughs> um, is it appropriate for Facebook to work with the United States government to avoid the First Amendment, help the U.S. government avoid the First Amendment? Uh, Senator, we do think it is uh, sometimes appropriate to be in contact with government and with government organizations. To help them avoid the First Amendment? <laughs> Senator, I'm not sure what, 
what specifically you're referring to. Mm. I love that. I'm not sure what you're specific. Are you not? Are you not fucking familiar with what he's specifically referring to? Could it be the CDC directing explicitly who and what to ban from your platform? You son of a bitch. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think it's appropriate to work with the United States government to target private individual speech that is constitutionally protected? Senator, I'm not aware of, of that. Mm. Well, let me, um, let me educate you. <laughs> On July 16th, 2021, Facebook, an employee at Facebook wrote to the Department of Health and Human Services saying, and I quote, I know our teams met today to better understand the scope of what the White House expects from us on this. Note that the White House, what the White House expects, not the CDC, not the FBI, the White House specifically. Fucking fascist bastards. Information going forward. On July 23rd, 2021, a Facebook employee thanked HHS, quote, for taking the time to meet earlier today. And wanted to make sure you saw the steps we just took this past week to adjust policies and what we are removing with respect to misinformation. This included, and I'm still quoting, increasing the strength of our demotions for COVID and vaccine-related content. On April 7, 2021, a Facebook employee thanked the CDC for responding to misinformation queries. And I quote, we'll get moving now to be able to remove all but that one claim as soon as the announcement and authorization happens. On July 28th of this year, a Facebook employee reached out to CDC about, quote, doing a monthly misinfo debunking meeting. The CD responded, yes, we would love to do that. Sure they would. On July 20th, 2021, Clark Humphrey at the White House, who's digital director of the COVID-19 response team, emailed Dave Sumner at your company, among others, asking any way we can get this pulled down and cited a specific Instagram account Within 46 seconds, your company responded and said, yep, on it. How you like that? How you like them apples? Exactly what we all knew. I'm going to unpause it so his face doesn't look like that. Uh, all of 2020 and 2021, you have the White House, CDC, HHS directing explicitly, not just what to censor, but whom. They weren't just saying... Here's generally our parameters on what we think would be good health advice. No, no, no. They went so far as to say specifically this guy, this guy, this guy, this gal. These people are propagating narratives that are counter to our narrative and must go. Fascism 101, folks. That sounds like what in the law we call a pattern and practice of meeting coordinating and colluding with the United States government to target particular speech that no one in any of these emails alleges is incitement, which would not be constitutionally protected. No one in any of these emails alleges it directly encourages violence, which would not be constitutionally protected. So it appears to all be constitutionally protected speech on, I might add, very politically sensitive topics that Facebook is directly working with the U.S. government to target and remove. Is that your company policy to do this kind of thing? Senator, we were, we were quite public about our uh, cooperation with uh, health organizations during the- I love this. Well, we were open about it, so it's okay. No, it's not okay because you just told us about it. That's not an acceptable position to hold. You're just proudly a fascistic enterprise now. That's basically what he's admitting here. 
as opposed to going, yeah, you know, we're caught red-handed. We were colluding to suppress free speech and the First Amendment no longer applies in this nation. And, you know, no, we're just, we're proud. We're proud of it. We're proud of it. Just absolutely evil. The unprecedented time of COVID. It, well, is it unprecedented? Given that you guys also are being dictated on what to censor when it comes to the Russian-Ukraine war. So is that an unprecedented time too? And, and if it's going to be an unprecedented time and, and the parameters for unprecedented, the definition of unprecedented ultimately is an evolving one, then it could it could apply to anything, could it not? To election disinformation, for instance? Yeah, exactly. So whatever is outside of the regime narrative will ultimately be considered an unprecedented time and then therefore collusion, aka fascism, between the federal government, the White House, whatever other three-letter agency, and the big tech platforms will continue. We knew that people expected and wanted accurate information on our platform. We had conversations with the CDC, with the World Health Organization, and with other public health organizations, not just in the US, but abroad, in order to understand how to help sure, make sure that folks weren't getting information that could cause imminent harm. Yeah, imminent harm, like, I don't know, staying home for over a year? How about that harm? How about the harm of mandating that people put stuff in their body that they don't need? Any harm concerns there? No, none of the harms there. What about the fucking depression and addiction and the drug overdoses and the suicide that came because of the advice that you felt caused no imminent harm? Any concerns with that? Of course not. Fair enough. So you're, you're saying that this this was, in fact, company policy to have these kinds of meetings with HHS, with the CDC, with the White House directly that you did engage in in this behavior. And you think that it was entirely fine. Is that your testimony? Senator, I do believe it's appropriate for companies like ours to be in consultation with public health organizations and with government. And and you you can confirm that things like taking down a private Instagram account and uh, adjusting your policies at the behest of, of the White House uh, and putting into place misinformation policies at the behest of CDC, that, that those things you think are appropriate. This was company policy to do so. Is that fair to say? Senator, I'm not familiar with the Instagram account specifically that you're referencing, but we do know that people expected and hoped from the platforms that we would help them get accurate information about COVID during the unprecedented time, especially at the beginning. Well, if we want accurate information by your own fucked up definition of accurate information, why would we not just go to the CDC ourselves? Why would we not listen to the White House you know, press secretary? Uh, obviously, the reason we don't listen to them is because they're full of shit and they're liars to their core. But ultimately, if we want accurate information, we wouldn't go to my crazy grandma on uh, my grandma's not crazy, but you know what I'm saying? Metaphorically speaking, my crazy grandma on Facebook to figure out what I should be doing in response to COVID. So the, the entire premise is, is an absurdity. Why would I be getting like life changing information, life saving information from lunatics on social media? Why can you not just allow us to discern for ourselves? if the people that we're reading are right or wrong. Is that such a novel concept? Are we completely incapable of free thought? It seems to, it's such a paternalistic viewpoint on top of being a fascistic one that it drives me insane. Well, isn't there a difference between you as a platform putting forward information and censoring your users at the behest of the White House, the administration more broadly in the CDC? Isn't there a distinction there? We specifically, uh, 
wanted to work with public health experts to understand the relationship between information and behavior. And so we did consult with the CDC, the World Health Organization and others uh, to understand how the, the platform policies we built were affecting public health. Well, you didn't just you didn't just consult with them to understand how they affected public health. You actually censored on their behalf. I mean, you, you took these emails. I'm just quoting from a sample of them, which, by the way, have been disclosed in litigation. These these emails show that you took censorship steps. You took down accounts. You planned misinformation policies. You adjusted your policies at the behest of the United States government. I mean, that, that's not just some theoretical thing. That's actually targeting your user's speech. But you're, you're, I appreciate your forthrightness, by the way. So, but you're saying that, that was, you think that's fine and that was your policy. Senator, we, we've been public about our policies on COVID misinformation specifically as well as on misinformation generally. And so you think there's not, you're not concerned about any of this? Nothing that I just read to you, you're not concerned about it at all? Respectfully, Senator, I think the balance of how to protect free expression as well as public safety is a difficult issue. But it's one we're committed to working with outside experts and publishing our work. Prison. That's all I have to say about this guy. And, and you know, the Alex Jones and Stephen Crowders of the world that believe that libertarians don't have an answer for this stuff. Fascism should be illegal. <laughs> if you're going to have the, the Bill of Rights basically ignored via collusion between the federal government and big business, there should be criminal law that addresses that. And if there's not, it needs to be written. I don't know what the I don't know what the laws would be. I honestly never expected that we would be in this position. Just to be blunt, obviously abolition when it comes to the federal government would be an ultimate solution. But in the interim, there must be punishment for private businesses that go along with this stuff. And and ultimately, right now, instead of there being punishment, there's benefit. There is access to the Fed window. There is access to uh, you know political favoritism. There's access to, uh, you know, bills that are written that that benefit them over their competition, uh, basically corporate capture, things of that nature. It's there's no downside for these guys right now, and until that changes, we are absolutely doomed. Well, um, I, I appreciate you being so forthright. As I said, this is actually from litigation between the state of Missouri and the state of Louisiana and the federal government. I, I anticipate that your remarks under oath today are going to be very interesting and helpful to that litigation. I'll just say this. My view is, is that the United States government is bound by the First Amendment. They cannot encourage or coerce or incite or collude with a private party to get around the First Amendment. But you've just said to me today that that's basically what they did, that you coordinated with them repeatedly over a pattern of months and years to adjust and target your speech policies for protected speech at the behest of the United States government. I have to tell you, I've got a big problem with that. And I think all your users should too. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. There you have it. I uh, put them in prison. I don't know what else to tell you. It, Constructs of the state says public-private partnerships. That's exactly what this is, man. That's exactly what this is. And and we no longer have, we no longer have a free market. We haven't had one for a very long time. It could be argued we haven't had one since the Federal Reserve's creation in 1913. I would say... It became crystal clear over the past two years, though, that we are not dealing in a free market economy anymore. And and uh, yeah, 
I mean, I'll be honest, I, I don't have all the answers here because there isn't the political will to address it the way it needs to be addressed. I mean, obviously, uh, shrinking of the federal government is vitally important. Uh, without that, and in absence of that, the only choice is to become very litigious and to sue these people into oblivion and to sue the federal government for violating our First Amendment. And that's what they've done. That's what this platform I'm talking on right now has done, too, for the record. They have colluded with the federal government. I'm I'm certain. I'm certain that all of these big tech platforms have done the exact same thing. Facebook's just the only one that have been caught red-handed and admitted it. Uh, well, Twitter has also been caught red-handed. I, I don't know that there's been any uh, disclosures or leaks or litigation yet on the YouTube front, but I suspect that'll come out here soon. And this is a this is the biggest threat we face. Libertarians, if we want to be listened to and taken seriously, we have to stop pretending that these are private businesses. We have to stop. It pains me too. I wish it weren't the case, but it's quite clear that these people are not making decisions based off of just strictly what is best for their business. Well, if they are making it, it's it's based off of what's best for their business strictly because of the beneficial treatment that they'll receive from going along with federal dictates. And that, my dear gentlemen and gentle ladies, is not a free market. Let's find a way to fix it, huh? We're going to find a way. We're going to find our way through. I swear to fucking God we're going to find our way through. Because I'm not going to fucking lose. I love you guys. If you want to support my work, go to libertylockdown.locals.com. Sign up to become a sporting member. Alex Jones is supposed to come on next week. I think it's going to happen. I really do. It's going to be incredible when he does. Uh, I know there's a lot of people that are upset with him for saying that he's anti-libertarian. Uh, give me give me just an hour with him. Just give me an hour with him. That's all I have to say. Uh, last but not least, if you want to uh, become a walking billboard for the show, go to toplobster.com and pick up a uh, Liberty Lockdown shirt. I love you guys. We're out. <music>
Stop, must be air July. Screaming in the mic, a rip for 59. Miles to ratio, that black guns matter. Now all these lefties got crazy small bladders. None of us wanted war, but we're ready. You know I be bopping and rock steady. Liberty locked down, please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone. Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne. If you're riding with the thought, you've always got a home. The virus is scared of, will come and it'll go. The government knows this, don't get treated like a hoe.